Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business Fun Podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Any listing, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered with the world's most comprehensive refund protection product. To find out how you and your organization can partner with Booking Protect to deliver world-class customer service, a better, more personalized buying experience, and how you can create a new stream of revenue for your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that website is www.bookingprotect.com. While you're at the Booking Protect website, you might want to check out the blog, which is bookingprotect.com forward slash blog forward slash, where you can find our new ebook called What Matters in Ticketing Now. It is 40 plus thought leaders, executives, um, smarties from all over the world of tickets and entertainment talking about what matters in ticketing now. Um, really, really great resource for people who think through what's going on in tickets how to create some opportunities for your business and how to make more money. So check it out at bookingprotect.com forward slash blog forward slash. If you don't already, I would encourage you to sign up for my brand new ticket related newsletter. It is called Talking Tickets. It is a weekly newsletter that comes to you on Friday mornings, my time on the East Coast of the U.S. And it covers five top stories from the week with a quick analysis of why the story is important and why I picked it, along with some action items or some ways to think about the story so that you can take advantage of the opportunity. Um, You can insulate yourself from change or um, you can use it to create some sort of new outcome for your organization. You can get that by visiting my website at www.davewakeman.com and looking for the Talking Tickets tab at the top of the page. Or if that's too complicated, just send me an email, davidavewakeman.com, and I'll get you on the list. Uh, my guest today, I'm really excited to have to share this conversation with you, is Aubrey Bergauer. Uh, she is a vice president of strategic communications and executive director for the Center for Innovative Leadership at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, which is a lot of words um, coming from me to describe someone whose job is focused on change and innovation and helping people in the arts grow. <coughs> we had a, a a really great conversation. I was like so super excited to connect with Aubrey. Um, Sean Kelly from Vatic, who's a former uh, guest on the podcast, said, oh, my gosh, she's got a great personal brand, and she does. Um, you should follow her on the Twitter. You should read her stuff on Medium, and if she's speaking somewhere near you, you should go check her out. She's amazing. Um, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. I took more notes for our conversation to prepare for it than I have probably ever taken for any conversation that I've done on this podcast. But we talked about a lot of stuff. So we talked about customer retention. We talked about... Um, committees versus task force on boards. We talked about how to uh, flip the development and audience development model. We talked about measurements, uh, measuring the wrong things in your marketing. We talked about marketing strategy, strategic planning, generating revenue, um, business skills, uh, why group settings and group classes are valuable for arts organizations for people to learn. Uh, We talked about the short term versus the long term. We talked about who defines relevance in the market. We um, talked about uh, focusing on experimentation and failure. Uh, We talked about, geez, I got so many notes here. I don't even know. We talked about uh, funding, mission. We talked about sustainability. We talked about her uh, long-haul model 
that she uses, uh, about being an expert in arts marketing and about the importance of the business side of arts. Um, and we were able to really frame this in a way that it wasn't just about the arts, but these ideas are relevant to people in sports, uh, in theater, in attractions, in any form of entertainment. Uh, so this was a really super awesome conversation. Um, I totally feel like I should just fly across the country to San Francisco to go have a drink with Aubrey um, because she's just like so great. So I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Aubrey on the Business of Fun podcast. I'm really excited to have Aubrey Bergauer on the Business of Fun podcast today. Aubrey, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is so exciting. As we were just saying offline, um, it feels like we should have been having these conversations for years now because we have a very, very similar view of the world. Um, and I have, I told you I took more notes than I usually take for a conversation because I'm, and I'm so excited to get to talk to you in this format. So thank you. Um, I, there's so much to talk about. I don't even know where we should start off, but I want to probably start out with, because this is really, really relevant. Um, you've done a lot of talking about leadership. And one thing that I came back to over and over in my research was this idea of we need to be better at experimenting on things. And you talked specifically about there's kind of a culture around or a lack of a culture around failure and experimentation. Um, and I think that's a really good place to jump off at. Uh, and because I know that neither one of us is very interested in what we've done in the past, and we talked about that. So we'll start out, we'll talking about innovation and experimentation and failure, if that's okay by you. Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, that's an excellent starting place. And everything you just said, experimentation, a culture that embraces failure is okay, is the exact opposite of looking backwards. It's only looking forwards, because it's, it's a culture that says we cannot rest on our laurels. And so I think... What's important for anybody who's considering, well, what do we mean? A culture for failure? You know, what does that look like? I think it's important, especially for nonprofits and arts organizations to realize that it doesn't mean swing for the fences with no plan. <laughs> you know, that's not strategic at all. And so I always in my work talk about iteration. And I think that's a concept that is a little too foreign for the arts, but is not foreign at all in other industries. And so really when I talk about experimentation, it really is equivalent to iterating. And that means, okay, let's, it can be as simple as let's AB test something and measure the success of it. Okay. That's a really controlled, easy, no pressure, low pressure experiment. Okay. It can be as simple as let's run a pilot project. I'm a super fan of calling something a pilot project. Let's try this thing for three months, six months, put either test it on a segment of our audience or put a small amount of money behind it and just see how does this go? Does this give us an indicator of what could be something bigger in the future? And as I say all of these things, in some ways, like I said, in many other industries, this is not rocket science. This is like baseline, uh, very fundamental. But in the arts, it's just not, it's just not the culture and our approach so often. And I, th I think there's reasons for that, but I'm definitely on, call it a mission, call it a rampage to really change, change that, that we've got to embrace experimentation. You're on a rampage, and if anybody has listened to the podcast, they know I rant. So, so we're, I'm we're totally ready. Now, 
I like the idea of the pilot projects because nobody, I don't know if people really recognize this about me. And I'm curious because we have a, probably a similar business model in a way or, or like some of the things we focus on are very similar. But a lot of times I run pilot projects, right? It's like, um, I did a, uh, a workshop in Melbourne, Australia last year. It was really controlled. It was marketed to about 10 different organizations or one specific area and the cost to put it on was about 500 bucks so that if so that like i was able to control whether or not it was going to be successful or not successful in a way that wasn't catastrophic um i'm assuming that's what you're describing when you're talking about pilot projects as well and i was wondering if you maybe have an example that can show people so we can put some like a little bit more meat on the bones of, of this thing because i think what at least in my experience, holds people back a little bit is they know they want to try something like this, but they can't see how it works for their organization. I don't know if you have an example that would work for that or did I put you on the spot? Yeah, no, no. I think, okay, here's a good one. I remember at the California symphony, my last job, I was executive director there and we were trying to figure out how do we, uh, how do we really start to diversify our audience? And we had done a lot of EDI work internally, and I think it has to start there, but we also decided we've got to put some money where our mouth is in terms of our advertising. And yeah, this is a nonprofit with a small budget, a really lean staff, uh, and we said, okay, so it's got to start as an experiment. So what if we just run some digital ads, just take our same creative that's running on Facebook, for example, translate it to Spanish, target Spanish speakers within a, I don't know, five mile radius of our concert hall. And let's just try it for a concert or two and see how it goes. And that's a pretty cheap experiment to run. Digital ads with a pretty specific segmented audience translated. Okay, let's see. And very quickly, we started seeing results. We started seeing a change in our audience composition, which I think was also, you know, complementary to the work internally we had done to make sure we were sort of authentically doing this so that when we did put money behind it, we were setting ourselves up for success. But I just say that to say that so quickly we were able to see measurable results and and Spanish speakers coming to our concert hall. And then from there, it was, you know, when you put the data behind it and run a little pilot test, we were able to see, oh, my gosh, we got to start doing this for every concert all the time because the returns are there. So definitely a success story. And then from there, we got to say, okay, well, how do we staff up to do this better? What do we do when we uh, need instant translation on staff because people started messaging us on Facebook on our page in Spanish and we need it. We couldn't, you know, you can't call your translator and wait a day for them to get back to you to respond to that potential customer. Anyways, you know, so doing a pilot project on a small scale really helped us again, test measure. And then uh, going back to iteration, really start thinking about, okay, how do we iterate and scale this up a little bit so it can be an ongoing part of what we do. And you brought up measurements in here. And one of the notes I made was I wanted to ask you about, measurements because you have mentioned in your talks and in the writing you do that oftentimes one of the things that drives failure for a lot of our projects or a lot of our marketing op or and revenue opportunities is measuring the wrong things. So when you're doing a pilot program or even just in general, how do you make sure you're measuring the right things? Because this is really complicated and this is not just like people in the arts or people in sports or anywhere. No matter where people are marketing things, it's a challenge to measure the right things because there's so many easy mm -hmm. things to measure and they yeah. don't necessarily point you towards success. They just point you towards what feels good. 
Yes. Oh, my God, Dave. Oh, I agree. Like a million percent. Okay. So and it is complex because I think it takes some maybe emotional intelligence is the word to understand how do you approach looking at the right data, asking the right questions. And in a world where there is so much data available to us, how do we know that we're sort of parsing this out correctly? So first of all, I think data and measurement always starts with a question. So, you know, what is the end goal? And I think it's okay for the end goal to be money. I think for a lot of us, it's we've got to sell tickets. We need to fund our mission. And that's okay. And then it's figuring out how do we sort of reverse engineer that? What other questions stem from that? And how do we look at, okay, money in the short term versus money as long-term strategy? And how do we make sure those two, um, one isn't cannibalizing the other? And... I think that that's where I often start, I would say, as I'm sort of thinking out loud the answer to that question. You know, what is the question we're asking? How do we, how do we, how do we use the data available to us to answer that question? So I think, uh, there are some ways where, in this case I just gave, you know, maybe what would be the wrong way to approach it would be to say, oh my gosh, that ad got so many impressions. Yeah. <laughs> so many people saw that. You got okay. Hell okay. engagement, Aubrey. We got yeah. great engagement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's yeah, it's things like that. And I and so I just cringe sometimes when I do hear like, what does that matter? I mean, sure, there's there's like a brand awareness, I guess, if a lot of people saw something. But if the end goal in this particular example is we want to diversify our audiences, then we got to look at who is in the audience, who bought the ticket, and so. Um, I guess that's an example of a different way, you know, the different ways to look at the, the data and choosing what data helps us sort of focus the goals we're working towards. No, it makes sense to me. And you said starts with a question and, and what does the end look like? And that really lines up exactly with the question I always ask people whenever I'm going to sit down on either a consulting project or anything is like, well, what does success look like? Right. Because you can come up with all kinds of metrics that you want. But the thing is, is like, are those the ones that are going to be meaningful for you? And so one of the biggest drivers of failure for most organizations when they undertake any of these pilot projects like you you talked about, uh, new initiatives, focusing on anything, is they don't necessarily define success in a way that's meaningful and relevant to them. And that's a big challenge. And if, yeah. I, if I can get people just to stop and do that one thing, I think I would have done a great service for everybody. Um mm-hmm. But one thing you brought up during in, in the previous answer that, I, and I know this is something that in your role um, focusing on innovation and leadership is very important to you, um, is revenue and having conversations around ha- doing the right thing and having the right conversations and training people in the right um, way around revenue. So I know from my work because a lot of it for a long time was really specifically focused on money uh, and. Sometimes that made me seem like money grub, like uh, I forget how my friend Tim called it, the money grubbing. Uh, <laughs> I was too focused on money, which I had never understood. Um, but is how do you encourage the right conversations about money, right? Because yeah. it's, um, you know, the, the audience for the podcast is wide and there's a lot of arts people. There's a lot of perform- theater folks. Um, there's a lot of sports people. The sports people usually get the money argument pretty yeah, easily. Totally. So. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for them. Um, but how do you have the right conversation about money? Because all money is not good money, right? Mm-hmm. And understanding, you know, what that money enables you to do or how to have a positive conversation about money, to me, sometimes it's very difficult. And it's not because of me, but it's because, of, and I'm curious what you say, 
and how you've experienced this, it's a lot of times people have issues around about money and issues about money when it comes to the arts or entertainment or sports. Um, and so uncovering those is very, very challenging. So, you know, how do you encourage having the right conversations about money and revenue? At the end of the day, this is a business, no matter what that business is, an orchestra, a museum, a theater company, a sports organization. We're a business. And so we have a job to do. And I don't think, especially for mission-driven organizations, to say that is somehow in competition with executing the mission. I think it's just the opposite. By being really focused in a strategic way on revenue generation, we are, in fact, funding our mission better and allowing us to execute that mission better. So I have no problem talking about money. And it's and it's the crux of so much of what we do. I mean, it just, it takes money to, to operate a business. So, okay. That's, that's sort of the place I start from. I think where we get tripped up is short-term versus long-term incentives to generate that money. And so this is where it really takes uh, leadership looking at the longer term of, okay, well, what's a sustainable way to go after that money? And I think, you know, there's so, there is so much pressure to, to, to generate money in the short term, which is a, a huge problem, especially in the arts. I can't speak for the sports organizations, but we have so much pressure from our board members, from grant funders, all these things. You got to balance the budget every year. And so it really just sort of disincentivizes a long-term approach. And that's over time, I think what's really kind of killing us as, as a whole in the sector, which maybe is dramatic. So I don't mean to be so crazy about it, but, uh, <laughs> you can totally be dramatic. You can use as much hyperbole as you want. Okay. It's totally, totally fine here because if you don't, I will. It's completely, right. <laughs> it's completely fine. And cool. to answer your question about whether or not sports people are, are feeling the same thing, the, there is a huge strain between the short and long term thinking, but for entirely different reasons. Um, but it, it's interesting. And part of this, the reason I asked this is because you have a pretty unique point of view about the way that you should cultivate your audience and grow the audience. And um, I think the model that I saw, and I'm going to try to link to this in the show notes, because I thought the article was great. It was about talked about audience development. And and it ties into the short and long term thinking was you had two graphs and one was like really, really jumbled and like fractured and siloed off and all kinds of crazy stuff. And you had worked on a model that was like a pyramid <laughs> and it like yeah. worked people up the line. And I was like, well, well as a marketer, uh, a a somewhat uh, competent marketer, I'm, I'll be generous to myself today. I was like, this simplifies the way that you communicate and market and sell your product and that you have created a plan for everyone so that um, you don't have all these different buckets of people that are become easily confused or easily lost because, you know, you can't manage. It's tough to manage all this stuff, right? Um, can you talk about your philosophy of audience development and sort of, you know, what it means from your point of view to kind of simplify it and flip it and make it sort of, I don't know, you probably have a very nice term for it, but you know, to me, it just seems like a simpler, um, clearer way of communicating and growing an audience. Yeah, I call it a long haul model because it is about developing the relationship with the customer over the long term. And this goes right back to asking the right questions, uh, using data the right way 
to inform how we proceed. And so the graph you're talking about, or, or graphic, I should say, you're talking about is was my representation of what currently happens in the arts. And somebody buys a ticket and there is no clear next step for what that pe- person should do. And so as a result, our organizations, because we are desperate for money in the short term, then basically send every offer possible to that new quote unquote prospect. They've come once. And so suddenly we're soliciting them for a donation. We're sending them the season brochure, seeing if they want to become a subscriber. We are marketing to them like crazy for the next concert or performance uh, with single tickets and ads online. And it's just uh, they are automatically out of the email list. I mean, it's just this total bombardment of information and solicitations that is not focused at all. And so if I can, I believe you used a term that I love because I say it all the time, especially when I'm talking to sports sales, because sports sales is a little different than arts and theater. Spray and pray. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so this idea I told you I did research. Blanket the message. Yeah, you really have done your homework, David. <laughs> uh, to, to just like send something to everybody and hope that somebody responds is so unacceptable because of the data that is available to us today and unacceptable because of the tools we have to segment and know things about our audience. And this is true no matter if we are a teeny tiny arts organization or a big sports organization, those tools are available. And so I think it is just, like I said, just really unacceptable to proceed with spray and pray anymore. It's just bad marketing. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things, too, and I'm going to come back to the data thing in a second, but one of the things that I thought was interesting, because this is something I talk about, too, it's, you know, if you have an arts organization or if you have a sports team or anything, it's very tough to constantly continue to grow new audience people, right, acquire new customers. And you have a philosophy to focus on the folks you already have. And I think it recognizes this need that like, even if you live in New York City or you're in San Francisco now, uh, LA, these are huge, huge markets where there's millions and millions of people. You're not going to, you can't, you can only go so far with growing and acquiring new people. You know, so uh, how did you really, you know, how have you come to emphasize people that you already have to make that a priority? And what are some of the, the ways that you do that and some of the results and impact you've seen from that? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking you know, the long-term goal is sustainability. For any business, loyal customers are better than one-off, short-term, newly acquired customers. That's just fact. Lo- loyalty equals more money in the long-term, period. Okay, so given that premise, in the arts, loyalty, it, what's so ironic about this is loyalty was foundational to the origin story of arts organizations. For years and years, we had the subscription model that worked very well for us and maybe too well, because then as uh, consumer behavior started uh, evolving, as more and more entertainment options became available, yes, it became harder to fight for loyalty and to, and to earn loyalty. And so because of that, this pendulum has sort of swung, and especially for arts organizations, we say so often, oh, the subscription model's dead, or they're just not coming anymore, and and, and, oh, and this is over decades that this shift has happened, and, and we've become these acquisition-focused houses, and... To a degree, we are, we are excellent at acquisition. We have so many new people coming, and yet our retention rates are horrible. 
And so that's why I've said, and these stats are so ready, readily available in the field. The research has been done already. And so that's why taking all that into consideration, loyalty matters. There's more money in the end and we're good at acquisition and bad at retention. I thought, okay, clearly that means we need to be better at retention because there is more money on the table. And so that goes right back to the long haul model where we said, okay, if you're a first timer, we're not going to ask for a donation. We're not going to try to sell you a season ticket package yet. We just need you to come back again. And that is the next step for that person. And then if you look at somebody who's come a couple times, okay, they're a multi-buyer, repeat attendee, whatever we want to, whatever label we want to give that segment. And then for them, there is the data shows there is more proclivity. Once you've been a couple of times, maybe then a small package would be or small season ticket package would be an option for that person and so just to know this and again follow the data and to be able to make the right offer uh, to the right people that then starts building loyalty and there's so much money there instead of oh you came once hope spray and pray hope you come back hope you make a donation I don't know it just does not make sense to me that organizations proceed in that way no, it absolutely is crazy, and it is something that I know that I have. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I be, feel like I'm beating a dead horse on, um, but it's you know it is like have a plan for the customer life cycle, right? You got to think about uh, lifetime customer value uh, and have a, a path, right? Because um, the book I point people towards is uh, Soccernomics, which is about obviously about soccer and the business of soccer. But they talked about oh, the fans have multiple points where they're peaking for you, and you if you forget that you're you're having a relationship with the customer, then you're missing those peaks because they can fall away if you're not conscious of this. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about here is you talked about being extremely acquisition focused. And I know that one of the big things that you do focus on and talk about is like training the next generation of leaders and getting people trained a lot. Do you mm-hmm. think that this focus on acquisition is partly a training Challenge, and, I, and let me frame it a little bit more for you because what I've seen is um, the book I believe is called Bowling Alone from back around 2000, and it talked about how one of the challenges that like people used to find a sense of community in nonprofits, and that a lot of nonprofits have become just fundraising mills, and so and and to me it looks like a little bit that's the challenge that the arts organizations are facing is because they've forgotten what they're there for. And so then the whole challenge and the whole issue becomes just acquiring more and more and more to feed the fundraising machine, not necessarily to drive the community that pops up around the organization. And I'm curious what, how, you know, your point of view on this, because you probably spend a lot more time on this than I do. Yeah, it absolutely is a training problem. Very few people especially in the arts, decide early on, I want to be an expert arts marketer. I want to be a fantastic fundraiser. I want to lead, insert organization someday. Very few people feel that way early on in their careers. Our our whole, this gets into sort of a systemic issue about arts education and training programs, but, you know, we're trained usually as performers and, it's a real problem in our industry. I mean, people decide they want to be doctors and lawyers at young ages. Why not decide you want to be a fantastic arts leader mm-hmm. off stage? And although, and sports has a little bit of an advantage, and I think sports has done well. You always see the coach on TV when the team is playing. 
at an orchestra, you never see the executive director unless, in my case, I tried to make it a point that I was always visible, always present. But generally speaking, that's not always the case. And so, you know, the focus is on the performers. And so I think sort of systemically there's work to be done there. But as a result of that, it means that fewer people are choosing these paths, which means there are fewer training programs for these paths. And so it just really is sort of a vicious bad cycle that, yeah, a lack of training is a problem, which then exacerbates these issues of we think we see we need new audiences, we need younger audiences, or tell ourselves it's we need new audiences slash acquisition instead of, no, we've got great audiences coming. How do we retain them? So, yes, absolutely, it's a training issue. Yeah, my my goal really, if, and if I'm successful, then it will help, help is to elevate the idea of marketing and strategy as really just essential skills in any organization. Um, but, you know, specifically like the entertainment and the arts, I mean, because I mean, the, these industries have given me so much, uh, and it's really, really, um, it's problematic because the thing is, is like, there's so a little bit of training in these things will go a long way. And <laughs> it will make such a huge difference for people's, you know, first for the organizations, but also for people's careers. Because I think that there is, like you said, the coaches out there, but the thing is, is like people feel like they're somehow missing out by being in charge of the marketing. But to me, marketing is magic. It's like magical. You can create anything in the world with, with a marketing campaign if it's mm-hmm. done well. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, agree with you more that like I want to figure out how to elevate these roles and make people, you know, just proud of them. Right. Because they are great. These, you know, these institutions are cornerstones of the community when they're, when they're nurtured and cared for. Um, and if that sounds, makes me sound hippie, I'm fine with that right now. Um, <laughs> now the other thing that you brought up in the, the answer before that I want to ask you about, because this applies to everybody is you were talking about the subscription model being dead. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a subscription or season tickets or whatever, uh, something's dead. And I'm kind of, I want to ask it to you in a way that will allow us to highlight some of the steps that we can take to make the subscription or the season ticket a little more, um, feasible for people now because i think it's not that it's dead it's that the way we approach it is dead right it's yes bro- we, it's oh, broken I, agree. Totally agree. <laughs> I do not think it's dead i think we tell yeah. ourselves it is because we see oh, it's easy numbers when all around us the subscription model is thriving more than ever yeah i mean netflix spotify you know i get so many things shipped to my house on subscription it's like almost embarrassing at this point, you know, because (laughs) it's just, it's so prevalent. So no, my phone is with the like little subscription, the reminders popping up like, Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, the model itself is not dead. How did you just say it? The way we approach it is dead or something like that. Yeah, Yeah. that is true. And so the difference is, okay, why are all these other subscription models thriving? Okay. Well, uh, they address, sort of needs in our life, sometimes not even needs, wants in our life. They make our lives easier. They can be readily accessible. Um, I'm just riffing here, but all these things make these models, I think, successful, and, and, and the quality of the product is usually very good. Okay, well, arts organizations and sports teams, we have a great quality product, so that part's fine. Uh, and what's missing then in the approach is easy, convenient, makes my life uh, better in some way. And I'm sure arts people could say, 
Uh, and even sports people could say, well, yeah, of course we make your life better. Like, and that's a very like intrinsic it, self-congratulatory statement. Of course we make your life better. And that's not true. Of course true. I'm ask, awesome. <laughs> ask anybody who slept through an opera performance before. Did it make your life better? And I don't mean to be so mean, and I'm not trying to hate on the opera people. I'm just using that as an example of we cannot be so uh, self-congratulatory and assuming the intrinsic value of what we do. So, okay. So then if we really sort of unpack that and say – well, how do we make our product more approachable, more easily accessible, uh, more convenient for the customer so they want to adopt it more often in their life? What does that look like? Well, it probably doesn't mean a 18-week season ticket package for theater company, orchestra, insert whatever. And even for some sports teams, you got to be a pretty diehard fan to want a package that big, I would say. So... You're getting ready to say something I could tell. No, no, that, the price, the whole thing, right? There's like, so we set barriers at every, every step in the, uh, the process, it feels like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Barriers every step of the way in the process. And so, and yeah, it's a real big shift to try to figure out how do we do it differently? And then that goes back to, can we iterate, especially at big organizations? Is there a subset of, your audience base that you could test something on. I, for example, I can't wait till someday I'm at a, like, running a bigger orchestra again because I want to do a test of like, um, almost like a, oh gosh, what's those, like the clothing services that send you like Stitch Fix or something where you, they'll like curate rent the for runway. You. Yeah, or like rent the runway. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> is there a model for, uh, an arts organization where somebody can say, okay, here's my, I don't know, X dollars a month, whatever it is. And here are sort of my preferences of things I like. And then the orchestra sort of curates for them. Okay, here's your one concert a month. Here's your next three months of concerts. And then offer an exchange of ability if the patron wanted to. Like, I don't know if that would work, but a big organization could totally test that. It would be fun to test it. It would be super fun to test that, I think. And then I'm sure there's some people listening to this thinking, oh, that's a lot of work. How would our database handle that? How would blah, blah, blah? And then that just goes right back everything's to a lot of work. experimentation. Everything's a lot of work. Now, yeah. Yes, everything is a lot of work. You're right. If it was easy, then somebody would have already done this thing. That's the whole oh, point. That's so true. Yeah. But, what I, but you didn't get here, and I was like hoping it because I'm like, uh, and I don't know if you could read this okay. thing, but it's like going – you you said that the customer defines what is relevant, and I wrote it. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. So and, that is and it's true though. This yes. is like completely yes. relevant to what we were talking about. The customer is the one who tells us whether or not what we're offering matters. That's right. And so I guess what I'm saying is testing all these different things, whatever it is, even if it's not my crazy idea I just said. But uh, right, that's how we know if we're successful or not. And how does the customer tell us? With their dollars, how, with revenue. Okay, so we can see, yeah, and, and it's, um, it just goes right back to the sort of self-congratulatory thing I was saying. We don't get to decide if our, if our, I think we can decide our product is generally good. I think we know we have excellent performers at professional organizations, excellent athletes at sports organizations. So that, I think there's sort of a, a truth to that. But in terms of, is it relevant to the person sitting in the seat? Well, we don't get to decide that. They they do, as you said. So, and they tell us with if if they're coming or not. Right. Well, they also I think a, an important point is number one. You said that I quoted you, so I don't want to steal <laughs> your thunder. Uh, but number two, though, is that I, and 
is that the relevance and what is relevant to the audience changes and it can change constantly and it often does. And again, we're not the ones who are defining it. So it's like always having to listen to our audience and always kind of focus on them because what they want and desire and need is going to be different from month to month, from week to week, from day to day in a lot of situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And definitely year to year, decade to decade, which is we're talking about the changes in, in some of our industries being a little slower. Yeah. It's like that much time has passed since, you know, there's been real, any real sort of change to the, to the quote unquote model. Yeah. Now uh, the one thing I, and, and mainly this, I want to ask this because I, I like to be contrary. Um, and so this, this is again, one thing you, you've talked about. So it's not like I'm, um, jumping on your like trying to pull a fast one on you is we talk, you, you talked a lot of, you talk about uh, strategic planning a great deal, right? Which I agree a hundred percent on, but you made a quote that, um, about boards, uh, and you said, oh, there, there shouldn't be, uh, committees because the committees just sort of sit there and they don't do anything and task force are all about doing work, which mm-hmm. number one, I think is great. Uh, because I was like, well, I should have thought of that. But number two is, um, the way you explained it was great. And could you ex- talk about this a little bit? Because I think sometimes mm-hmm. too, it's like you put together committees and you go, well, why isn't anything happening? And I was in, you know, and then you do a task force where it's action oriented and things do happen. How did you mm-hmm. come up with this? Like, how did you discover this kind of disconnect between the committee and the task force and, and use it and create so that you create change? I can't claim full credit. I have to give credit to, there's a woman by the name of Susan Howlett. She does a lot of board training. She's written a book, Boards on Fire. And a lot of this I learned from her. So credit where credit's due. And this whole idea of task force versus committee, one of the examples she gave is, and is so true, think about when a board is most engaged. A lot of times it's when they're in the midst of a CEO search. That it is the b- job of the board to hire the chief executive, and that's when the board usually is fully leaning in. Okay, let's whether they're doing the search in house or engaging with a search firm. I mean, that's when it's all hands on deck, and it's so interesting because that is an example of a finite task. They will complete the search, they will place the new CEO, and then that committee or task force disbands because the job is done. And that is such an interesting example of, right, this was something where it was, here was the deliverable, here's the timeline in which we will execute this, and everybody get in, let's get it done, and get out. And that's just such a better model of engagement than join this committee that will meet every other month for the next year, but maybe also you'll be on the committee ongoing if we don't have a great structure for helping people rotate off committees. And I mean, that just sounds like a slog and for, for stronger board members who we need to be recruiting and, and, you know, really leaning on their expertise they bring. It's not a good use of their time. Yeah. And I think if you're, um, if you're being honest, if you think about it, right, if you're able to step back, because I ask about it because it's a provocative statement. But the thing is, if you step back and you look at the way most of us work well, we realize that like having some sort of finite end, a deadline, it really helps focus our attention. It focus our energies. It focus our efforts. Uh, I just had never really come across somebody saying it. Um, so pointedly, and it sounds like, oh, I love these things. Anything where I can throw a little bomb in the middle of the conversation is I awesome. Love it. Yeah. Let's do well, that. Yeah. So, I mean, as an administrator, it's so much easier too, because I've definitely, hopefully, I'll have uh, 
allies listening in this where there are sometimes where it's like the committee meeting is on the calendar because it's a standing meeting every other month or quarterly or whatever the frequency. And it's like, uh, what's going to be on the agenda this time? And that's just nobody. Nobody has time for that. I say the board members don't have time as staff members. We don't have time for that. So anyways, all just to say, yeah, let's get in, do the work, get out. I couldn't say that better myself. Um, so now one final thing, because I want to be conscious of your time, because it's, it's Friday morning where you are, and it's Friday afternoon where I am, and I know we all want to get to our weekend. Um, so now you're at the Center for Innovative Leadership, right? And your whole job is focusing on change. Can you explain to everybody what you're up to and like some, maybe some of the ways that people can engage with you that through, through the work you're doing now? Mm-hmm. So... When I left my job at the California Symphony this past summer, I said I, I'm not taking another executive director job at an orchestra. Instead, I want to have a greater impact on the field. And about that time, I had already been doing some consulting. I really dove into that more. And you and I were talking offline about this need for group programming. It goes back to training, group training. And I had already realized I've got to find a vehicle to do some group training. It just, you know, time one-on-one just doesn't scale. And so uh, at that time, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music had reached out and said, we want to start this Center for Innovative Leadership. We want you to lead it. And it really was just this match made in heaven of being given there's a new building under construction right now we'll have glorious new conference facilities a team of people here working on all of this and that was just it's it just was almost handed to me in this wonderful way and so um that's what we're working on now so the place I'm at is I'm developing curriculums to launch in the summer of 2021, which is probably the first time in my career where I feel like I have a runway, like, oh, there's time. I have time to do this. So that's been a real uh, luxury. But I'm um, developing curriculums to serve different people at different points in their career. So entry-level professionals, uh, going back to this idea that we need uh, you know, creativity to be unleashed. And even though you and I haven't used quite those words yet, I feel like that's sort of a theme throughout this conversation. And, and how do we train new people entering the field that you can think outside the box and can think about doing things differently? And how do we train entry-level professionals how to manage up when there might be people above them, more senior, who aren't as open to new ways of doing business and new approaches. Okay, so that's one group we're working on or uh, developing curriculum for. Another group I'm working on are first-time executives. So there's so many things, especially especially in the arts, uh, where until you're in that executive director hot seat, you haven't led a union negotiation before and or maybe haven't worked directly with the board. It, you know, you haven't certainly haven't as a first time executive director in that CEO role before. So how do you manage up when suddenly your boss isn't one person? It's a group of people called the board. So there's things like that where I just feel like first time executives, which is the peer group I left recently. Uh, you know, we need we need some training there as well. And ideally, those people are the pipeline to be leading bigger and bigger organizations as as their careers progress. So uh, that's another cohort. And then very quickly, also looking at developing training for board members, these people who are the ones, you know, boards can self-govern. So how do we help them realize, yeah, task force, not a committee, or how do they select the CEO if they think they need change in their organization? How do they better find somebody who does, who can lead them through change? And 
anyway, so there's a whole category of training we need for our boards. And then lastly, uh, our favorite group, Dave, revenue generating professionals. So how do we train the people uh, at arts organizations to, to bring in the money we need to yes. serve our mission? Well, so you know, all of that, yeah. Go ahead. You know, you know, I I always talk about where do we get the money from. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would t- I would tell people definitely to check out what you're working on. It's very very uh, it's super exciting. It's going to be awesome. I have no doubt about this. It's going to be great. And you know, some of these topics are things that um, I think probably having someone like you shine a light on them is going to be tremendous because I think sometimes just having someone frame what it is, is very, very helpful. Cause I think sometimes, especially like first time leaders, they don't know what they don't know. Right. Like, right. You, because you, how can you, right? I, I, I mean, how many times did I screw up when I was first in leadership positions? Because I was like given the title and a raise and go, go do this, figure this thing out. And I was like, I'm freaking mm-hmm. clueless. So, I mean, so this is great. Um, Aubrey, where can people find you on the internet? Because you have a great social footprint, uh, internet footprint, as we say, a, a personal brand, uh, the, uh, I might say. So uh, I want to make sure people can find you. Thank you. I am at AubreyBergauer.com if you want to hit my website. There's an email list if you want more information about the Center for Innovative Leadership on my website. Uh, and then Aubrey Bergauer, pick your favorite social media channel. I'm on all of them, Aubrey Bergauer. <laughs> yeah, you got lucky. There's somebody who's, this is an ongoing thing here. Somebody stole the Ed Dave Wakeman Twitter handle. I can't oh. get it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. It's a total pleasure, Dave. What did you think about my conversation with Aubrey? Let me know. Send me an email. It's my name, Dave at DaveWakeman.com. While you're there, check out my website. It's DaveWakeman.com. You can find my blog. You can find uh, all kinds of stuff that I'm up to. I keep adding things now. You've got to check out and bookmark DaveWakeman.com. I'd love it if you connect with me on the social medias, right? If you're not my friend on Twitter, follow me. I'm at David Wakeman, which... I don't even know what episode I'm on now, but for as long as I've been doing this podcast, if you know the guy who has the at Dave Wakeman Twitter handle, get it for me. He hasn't tweeted since 2010. That's a decade ago. I need this Twitter handle. Also, you can hook up with me on LinkedIn. Just search my name, Dave Wakeman, and you'll find me in my big mug. It'll be great. Connect with me. If you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I would love it if you would share the podcast with a colleague, a friend, coworker, anyone who would gain value from conversations like the one today with Aubrey or Tony Knopp or Lauren Teague or, gosh, Patrick Ryan, Simon Mab, Kat Spencer, Maureen Anderson, any of these people, you know. So do it. It helps grow the podcast and make sure I can continue to get great people like Aubrey on the pod. Um, Do it. If you've already been sharing it with me, or not with me, with other people, if you could subscribe, that would be awesome. We're on almost all the major podcast platforms, unless we're on all of them. I'm not sure. And if you subscribed, maybe you'll leave a, a rating or a review. It helps people find out what I'm up to. It helps make sure that people understand that this is a valuable podcast to listen to. And it does encourage people to be a guest on the podcast. As always, I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect, the Global Leaders in Refund Protection, for being my partners on the Business Fund Podcast, the Talking Tickets newsletter, uh, all over the world we go. Um, if you haven't already, check out their website, bookingprotect.com, and figure, find out how working with them 
will create opportunities for you and your organization to give your customers world-class customer service. Right now, we're dealing with um, flu and cold season, so illnesses come up and pop up. Um, offering refund protection and then giving people great service is more important than ever before. You're also allowing your guests to customize their experience, which is extremely valuable. People want control, especially considering how far in advance on-sale dates for tickets go now. And maybe most importantly for you is you can create a brand new stream of revenue. So check them out at bookingprotect.com. While you're there, check out the blog at bookingprotect.com forward slash blog forward slash where you can download our brand new ebook, What Matters in Ticketing Now. It's 40 plus ideas and thoughts from thought leaders around the world about what's important in tickets today, uh, things you can focus on, things you can take action on, all kinds of great stuff. So you'll find that at bookingprotect.com forward slash blog forward slash. As always, I want to thank you for being here and listening. Um, I couldn't do it without you. So until next time, take it easy. I'll talk to you soon.